Okay. I feel like Simon's like this uh, rock star. You know, he doesn't show up until like, you know, until you're like, Simon, Simon, then we get going. Is he there? There he is. Okay. Yes. You know, the, I was never called the rock star, so there's always something to be, uh, be, be ready for. It's your, so, it's, it's, you've, it's, you've gone through to write a passage. You've just passed through it. Nice. All right. Well, I, uh, I just, I'll, I'm flashing on the screen and I may never touch the screen again, which is the way I love to do these events. I just sort of kick them off and everybody learns a lot. Um, we had a really great event and I, I used the, I called Bill Doikler the, uh, the Joe Montana. I didn't have to do much. Uh, but what's, I'm not sure what the ex, the other quarterback reference is, but Simon Vine, uh, is like a poster child member of our community. He just really introduces, it seems like every day he introduces me to somebody and, and they're all thoughtful, interesting people. And many of them are, are here. Uh, or other people through the chain have introduced it. So we've got a great lineup, uh, really will be thought provoking. Um, so we're recording this, you know, maybe I will show one thing for my compliance purposes. Um, yeah, this is the keep yourselves on mute as well, obviously, but we want to be interactive. Um, and, uh, excited that Simon, I met, you know, there's a, an expression in Russia. Uh, called Kakpomaslu. Um, and the, the way I understand, it, sort of like, like a knife through warm butter. Uh, just, shoo. and that's what I said when I met my wife. Um, so I'm using really, it's a powerful thing to say, but Simon is the kind of person that you feel like, like our relationship just sort of happened really quick in, in our, and how he connects it into our network. So very excited. This is like the Simon Vine production two of future of work and uh he, again he's put together a really great group and i i uh, just like to uh thank him and everybody for their time and and get you know get on the edge of your seats and sign with that i'm going to stop sharing and uh let you take over thank you mark thank you very much and um, thank you for the warm introduction. Now I feel like I'm a rock star and uh, a little bit more than that. Uh, the only problem is with such expectations, I can only go down. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for providing this opportunity for all of us to meet. Uh, today we'll be talking about the future work, and um, we will be talking about a very specific um, area which is called aligning our families with future trends. The idea is to be very helpful as opposed to just talk about theory and to be helpful to our families because, of course, the issue of our kids is very dear to our hearts. Uh, before we start, uh, maybe it's worth uh, reminding everyone that uh, this is a, uh, an entire new discipline. And as you can see, uh, the discipline covers research and practical advice in many areas, impact of technologies, uh, globalization, environment, and many other big changing fields uh, which will impact our workplace. And today we will focus more on the generational aspect of it. And uh, just as in every field, there are many 
new terms, and uh, the field is populated with very interesting initiatives. And uh, hopefully you will hear some of these things today during the second part uh, of our uh, discussion. And uh, we will try to be very provocative. You already saw Denise's invitation to ask questions. And the first thing, which is very important for us to uh, um, kind of uh, understand in this format, that the more questions you ask uh, is better for everyone. We will try to address these issues after uh, the, the discussions when we will have Q&A. And uh, we also would like you to uh, share your views, share your uh, life hacks, so that it is productive for everyone and it is engaging for everyone. And the first thing which is important to understand is uh, the whole concept of generations. Uh, we are trying to uh, adjust this concept. Uh, because those who understand the generations understand the map, and those who understand the values, which we'll be discussing later, uh, understand the flagpost of the new generations. And uh, today, in the first part of our session, you will hear uh, from Eric Orange, whom you know well, and she will be talking about the hidden knowledge of generations, uh, Gary Bowles, whom you also know very well, will uh, explain to us why everything, what we think we know, is completely useless, and therefore we should forget about it. Uh, and then uh, Denise will have, will have a much more soothing talk uh, explaining to us how the new values will connect this disconnect in our understanding and the future generations. So she will be kind of a cementing block between uh, the talk that um, Eric will deliver and Gary. And um, one of the things which is very important is that we kind of um, not only talk about the future work, but we also understand that all of us have this ex generational experience. And I'm saying that because so we hear so much uh, from uh, different sources that we have, we're clueless, that we don't understand how the next generation works and forget about the generation uh, after the next one. But in fact, most of us have dealt with generations. And uh, we dealt with our parents and had our problems with them, and then we dealt with generations at work. And therefore, the first question I have for all of us uh, is like other life hacks which you believe were helpful to you to adjust to your parents, to your grandparents, to your kids, and now to your grandkids or to your younger kids. Uh, and these life hacks would be very helpful. So the idea of this um, discussion is to actually rejuvenate your thinking about this very important issue. And then I would like to mention to you that um, my, uh, my life hack uh, was um, very simple. Uh, I just uh, used, I just thought about the terms which I knew, uh, and I tried to understand how others were thinking about this thing. And it sounds like so simple that people think it is not as powerful as it is. 
And uh, that's why I just wanted to share with you my experience as a manager who had to deal with the situation because a few years ago, uh, all Generation X um, managers uh, were petrified uh, to deal with Generation Y. And we had all special consultants coming to us and telling us how we have to redesign our cafeteria, how we need to talk to people, how we need to get dressed, how, which language to use, which language not to use. So suddenly this issue became a very scientific and very kind of remote for practice. And uh, this is the only thing which I actually used, that uh, very uh, life hack. I tried to understand how the new generation uh, uh, was communicating and what were the value, their values. And I must tell you that um, it is not a, an obvious thing because, for instance, when we talk about three metrics which I believe define the attitude to which define all the generations, uh, you see the metrics of success, freedom, and uncertainty. Uh, each generation has a completely different point of view, but frankly, what I discovered when you ask people, what does the word success mean to you? Uh, people say something very simple, like a lot of money, freedom, oh, Statue of Liberty, uncertainty, or the future. And that's as much as most people, even adults, can talk about this. So even though it sounds like a simple exercise, I would like to kind of share with you uh, my perception of how these things work. So, for instance, success. Uh, what uh, I discovered uh, was that my generation uh, meant that the ultimate uh, measure of success was your bonus. And uh, we knew from uh, the consultants that uh, Generation Y thinks about success as experiences, multiple experiences, of course. They didn't have, they had much easier uh, way into life because technology was simple, because we were far removed from the wars. So material, the material situation was much easier. And that's why they could afford uh, travel, because travel was cheaper. Uh, they could afford uh, better food than, let's say, my generation could, because food was uh, e was cheaper. And um, uh, what I did, I when I understood that the ex uh, experience for this generation is more important than money, I repositioned myself and instead of telling them that you will get money and glory, I started to talking to them in terms of experience. I promise that they will experience this feeling of uh, uh, getting to the top of the mountain, be successful, that everybody will look up to them. And surprisingly, this little thing completely changed the dynamics between me and my people. And initially, they really didn't like my methods because they were a little bit aggressive. But eventually, I realized that when it comes to the word success, People forgive you everything if you give it to them, and that, that's my analysis in general. But still, you have to deliver it on terms of that generation. So once they start feeling that they are having this experience of success, which they didn't have before, the um, measure of uh, involvement and happiness with the workplace increased from 60% to 80%, even though they were supposedly a different generation and supposedly my generation didn't know how to manage them. 
The same concept is the concept of freedom. Uh, what I discovered is that it's not as glorious as most people think. Uh, when you actually survey people, uh, people mean the order. So it's not like uh, I can do what I want. It's not like I have so many choices, but it is like, uh, well, if everybody does what uh, they want, uh, I'm using they as instead of he or she, just in case, uh, suddenly people say, well, I'm working hard and they're doing whatever they want. So that's not fair. So suddenly, uh, at the workplace, people want an order. They have, a, they want to have a comfort. So it turns out that comfort, the comfortable zone in which you can predictably uh, get the results, is is the definition of freedom of many people. And again, I, I surveyed my colleagues who are mostly bankers and uh, technology people. But I'm sure that if you talk to the lawyers and others the definition of freedom will, will be like this. Well, I think it will be a little bit different for our kids and for the next generation. Final uncertainty. Everybody whom I, to whom I talk, uh, if and I'm asking you this question, maybe you can answer it uh, to Denise on chat. What is uncertainty? We use this word so much. And what I discovered that people don't think about uncertainty as the uncertainty of the past. Uncertainty of the future is what we're thinking about, uncertainty of the present, maybe. But turns out that very often we cannot move forward because we don't understand how our actions today will be understood in two years or in three years. And we witnessed this this summer, right, when uh, people suddenly started questioning history. So whatever you were saying two years ago, People will go on the internet, find out, and say, well, that's what that, that person said. And suddenly, uncertainty of the past paralyzed many of us because we suddenly understood that uncertainty of the past is actually a real enemy of the freedom of expression. And, and just think about it, that our kids will live in the world where every word they make, they, they pronounce or type, will be recallable for all their lives. So when you start thinking about at least these three metrics, and maybe you will come up with your own metrics, uh, suddenly, uh, hopefully, and suddenly, there will be a transparency to the concept of um, uh, generations. And with these few uh, thoughts, I would like to pass on uh, Mike to uh, our wonderful Erica. And uh, Erica, the floor is yours. Thank you, Simon. Great way to tee everything up and great being with all of you. Um, I am going to take us through a uh, very quick view of the future, speak very conceptually, uh, introduce you guys to my framework for understanding generation. And then the hope is to use that as a springboard to then kind of delve into more of the granularities. So before we talk about kind of young people today, let's reverse and kind of take the 20,000 foot view just for a couple minutes and talk about the world in which these young people are even coming into and getting uh, acclimated to. So the one thing, and some of you guys have heard me talk about this before, the world today is marked by boundarylessness and it is marked by new perceptions around time. And this is really one of my soapboxes because I talk about the term templosion. 
the fact that these big things, these big events are happening in shorter and shorter periods of time. And it's as if we were experiencing the world on steroids. So it's not just about complexity. It is not just about uncertainty. And those are two very real things. But it's also as if we are such schizophrenic individuals trying to navigate this sea of just rapid change and the speeding up of time. And the boundaries between things that we used to define as very separate are now coming together. Uh, so what do I mean by that? Basically, we see a merger between things that are real and things that are virtual. And I look at a lot of young people today um, and even older generations, but um, we are very adept at having one life and one persona in the real world, another life, another persona in the digital, another life, another persona in the virtual. And then, uh, Simon, when you talk about metrics of success, uh, you know, I see some of the comments coming up in the chat box here, and it is so defined individually. And I would say one of my definitions of success in the future uh, really is all around the ability to seamlessly navigate between all of these different realities and all of these different personas. Because young people today are living multiple lives at once, and these multiple lives are playing out in multiple futures, I would argue that the ability to seamlessly integrate them and move back and forth in a way that is authentic and transparent uh, and even honest and core to who it is that you are is going to be one of the ways in which I think young people will define success in the future. We're also seeing a coming together of the tangible and the intangible, the analog, the digital, um, increasingly with the rate of technological change, even the biological and the technological in some ways. And for these young people, their own biology, they're going to become more technological beings. Uh, we're also seeing a blurring of the boundaries between what is real and what is fake, what is true and what is false. Um, and the fact that trust in this new environment is becoming a new luxury. So I just say that to set the stage because this is the world that these young people are occupying and understanding, uh, again, that there are going to be multiple pathways, multiple futures and multiple realities is the first thing that we really need to understand. Oh, huh, there's my son. I haven't even shared my slides yet, but, uh, there he is. So, uh, okay. Let me pull up my presentation here. So sorry, share screen. Bum, ba -dum. Okay. Uh, can you guys see this? No? Yep. We got it. Yeah. You guys can see the first slide of this generational compression, right? Okay. Sorry. I talked about tech and I am such a Neanderthal when it comes to this. <laughs> so in a world of this templosion where things are happening faster than ever before, one of the things that we continue to get wrong, and it's, this is not just as it refers to market researchers or demographers, demographers, but just even when we talk about the future of work, the one thing that we continue to get wrong is we segment generations and cohorts that are too large and inappropriate for the world into which we are moving into. So we still segment them in 15-year age cohorts. And if we're lucky, maybe we'll whittle them down to every 10 to 12 years. But in a world where technology is changing so quickly and knowledge is becoming outdated at such a quickening pace, the fact that we still have these segmentations does not make any sense. So we really need to rethink how it is that we define a generation in the first place. And 
I've also argued for a while that generations need to be understood in two to three year age cohorts. Now it makes all of our jobs harder and it becomes a little bit of a cluster when you really whittle it down to these micro generations and the fact that the workplace is gonna be comprised of not just five or six mega generations, but dozens, probably two dozen micro generations because each one every couple of years has a completely new set of values and attitudes. The other thing that also to me doesn't really make much sense as a futurist looking at long-term trends is the fact that we had uh, Gen X, we had Gen Y, um, and we thought we were clever by calling them millennials, uh, which also doesn't describe what it is and who they are at all. Uh, so we're like, all right, let's just continue down the chain of the sequence and call them Gen Z, when Gen Z tells us absolutely nothing about them. So we also need to rethink how we even give these generations names in the first place. Uh, so we call them in our shop cybrids, cyber hybrids. And this is the generation uh, that was born in 1996 uh, and is just starting to enter the workplace today. It's the older end of this. Uh, now, again, I would be talking to you for hours if I defined each little micro generation. So for simplicity's sake, we're just going to talk about them as a whole. Um, so we call them cyber hybrids because it really gets to who they are and what matters to them. Um, and again, this is not to kind of bring up any notion of a cyborg. Uh, that might actually be the generation coming up behind them. But we call them these cyber hybrids because they are the first generation ever in history to have different neural wiring than their predecessors. And because they have such a symbiotic relationship to technology, that they really are these cybrids. They are morphing with technology. And why are they so important? Just a couple of stats here. They make up almost 29% of the global population, around 2 billion people. Uh, and they are even more pronounced in the developing world where they have burgeoning youth populations, and they represent over 40% of consumers. They have a tremendous amount of spending power. Um, and what really matters to them is that it's not just about the trend, the trend towards technology, but it is also about the counter trend. And this is a generation that also craves the simple, the tactile, uh, the analog, and it's existing within the same individual. Now, this beautiful, glorious being that you see in front of you, uh, this is my son. This is my son, Zane, who now is three, and this was him last year when he was about two years old. And I put these two pictures side by side because it really gets to the heart of what makes this generation tick today. They are uh, technologically connected, but yet, my earlier point, they still crave those real-world experiences, and their whole view of the world is bifurcated into these two very distinct realities. Now, I mentioned the fact that we are growing very different brains, and this becomes its own sort of thing because longitudinally, we have absolutely no idea how this is actually going to play out. Um, but they have different neural wiring because of that earliest access to technology. So they are living a life. We call this the growth of the nonlinear life trajectory. Their life is not going to be about A to B to B to C. It's not going to play out in a linear fashion. Stages of development are all overlapping. And the way in which they communicate is all overlapping because everything now is kind of structured in a web-like pattern. But yet we still put those new brains, 
that have so many different and new connections into outmoded structures. Now, some of you might have heard my talk on the future of education, and one of the points that I made there was the fact that we are growing new brains, and we know that we are, but yet we are putting them into a school system that was appropriate for an industrialized economy for not just my grandparents, but my great-grandparents, that is based only on linear thinking, and we wonder why there is a problem with attention and boredom. And instead of changing the institution, we try to change the brain. And that is the same thing when extrapolated out, when you put them into a hierarchical or siloed workforce that basically adopts, excuse me, adopts metrics that are based solely on input, clocking in, walking out. They do not think that way. And yet we think we have a problem with retention and even recruitment when we really need to rethink how it is that we structure our organizations. So there have to be new approaches to learning, marketing, employment, and even the cultivation and development of entirely new skills and competencies. Now let's look at a couple things that really define this generation. This generation as a whole is largely collaborative. They wanna to work together. They are very inclusive and they are highly entrepreneurial. And this point is really important because uh, when I used to make this point to audiences, they would come to me afterwards and say, but weren't millennials entrepreneurial? And I always make the point, this is one of the biggest differentiating factors between the two generations because millennials as a whole, when did they come of age? They came of age during the economic recession, which I call a transformation, around 2005 to 2008. And as a result, they are highly risk averse. And they are risk averse because of these economic realities that they grew up with. And in fact, the cohort that turned 28 just, I think, last year was the least entrepreneurial since World War II. Now, Gen Z grew up in very different times. They learned the lessons from their predecessors. So they are much less risk averse and they are interested in creating their own businesses. They are also eager to build a better planet. So messages of sustainability, particularly from a company that they are going to work for or buy from reign supreme. Um, and then when they're uh, dealing with any company or brand, they want control over their own data and they do not want to be tracked, but yet at the same time, they want that company to at least be using sophisticated technology. So it's an interesting uh, push and pull there. And the things that really matter to them um, are things such as transparency, authenticity, trust. But more than anything, it really comes down to honesty. They want to work for a company that talks the talk and walks the walk, and they are honest about their practices what they are and what they represent. Because ultimately, and I said this before, there are two main luxuries today, and that is time, trust, and increasingly truth. So they also have an exorbitant amount of financial influence. Um, in the US alone, they represent almost $144 billion worth of spending power. And purchasing decisions used to be trickle down. So grandparents would influence parents, which would influence children. Now that is becoming inversely proportional. So the cybrids, because they are so digitally savvy, are actually affecting the purchasing decisions of uh, the older members of their household. So they are influencing their parents and even their grandparents, and in some cases, their great-grandparents uh, with increased longevity. Uh, so they have a direct influence on household purchases. And in many ways, they are becoming their own independent economic engine. And this is really a critical point. We did a paper uh, last year on something that we called Capitalism Junior. And this is really about the fact that influence, particularly viral influence, 
um, through social media um, is now being directly correlated with income. And they don't need permission anymore. Um, this is a permissionless frontier. Uh, and this is unlike anything that we've really seen before because they used to have to ask permission from authority figures. Because of access to technology and they are so savvy, they don't need that anymore. It is also gatekeeperless. Um, they can basically circumvent or even remove traditional gatekeepers and they can accumulate widespread social currency beyond the purview of those that used to be able to closely monitor or control them, whether it's parents, educators, bosses, teachers, whoever it is, they're able to step around it. Um, it's also hierarchy-less. Uh, many kids are building clout and essentially developing their own personal brands at such an early age that they are dismantling all of these conventional hierarchies uh, that we used to thought, that we used to think would define a career because they're doing this at such a younger and younger age. Uh, so this becomes its own very interesting thing because when they enter the workforce, this might not be one, their only revenue stream, or two, their first experience working. They could be doing this at such uh, younger and younger ages. Um, and interesting, in, ugh, sorry, interestingly enough, uh, cybrids at work, um, an HBR study recently found that becoming a leader was important to 61% of Gen Z respondents. And when I talk about trend and counter trend, uh, you know, we think that they just want to be digitally connected at all times, but that counter trend really is such a critical one to understand because 53% of them said that they prefer in-person communication. So we have to really understand uh, what it's going to look like when they really come into the workforce and the things that matter to them. Uh, I'll just leave you with a couple kind of additional thoughts that I think will influence the future of work. Uh, one is we're going to see the rise of something that I call flip generation leadership uh, because a lot of older generations were thrust out of the workplace uh, or their traditional careers because of what happened, again, in around 2008, many of them have been forced to reinvent themselves. And many of them have moved on to new jobs, new sectors, and uh, many of them are taking entry positions where their bosses are those that are much younger than them. And the cybrids and the very kind of late millennials who are entering the workforce are trying to fast track their careers such that we will see age juniors managing, uh, age juniors that are more senior managing their age seniors that are more junior. And this creates a very interesting kind of inversely proportional workplace relationship. But when it comes to, to traditional management, um, the things that I think are really going to matter to cybrids uh, is one, the fact that we have an annual review or even a quarterly review is so antiquated Give them constant feedback. And unlike millennials, it doesn't have to be wholly positive feedback. They just want feedback. They are acculturated in a world of constant likes, dislikes, emojis, memes, gifs, smiley faces, all of these forms of nonverbal communication. Tell them near constantly and in real time what they are doing right and what they are doing wrong. The second thing is gamify the process for them. Gamification is essentially the leveraging of gaming mechanics in a non-game setting. It's leveling up. It's reward structures. It's points. Uh, it's a star chart. 
It's all of these things that we might think of as silly or trivial, but this is how their mind works. Um, they want to be extrinsically motivated in that way. So give them those tools so that they can be intrinsically motivated. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, I talked for a while about mentorship and we hear so much about mentorship, but it really is also about reverse mentorship. So anybody on this call today who is in uh, any sort of management position and looking to hire a cybrid, tap into their thinking. If you're bringing in an intern, don't just ask them to bring you coffee. Ask them uh, what they see, what they think about the technologies that they are using, how they communicate with their friends, how they view the world, how they view geopolitics or sociocultural challenges, whatever it is, tap into their minds because we might think of them as like these aliens from another planet. And in some cases they are, but they have such a wealth of knowledge and information that new ways to really harness that I think will be critical. And then the last thing is, I think uh, one of the things that is missing in a lot of these conversations when we think about future skills and future competencies uh, is that in a world that is more nonlinear and in a, in a world where things do develop more in this web-like pattern, to think of how we can reintroduce a sense of rediscovery, reimagination, whimsy, and play, how to lighten things up so that in a world of complexity and complex capacity, which is our ability and capacity to deal with that complexity, um, how to do it in a way that is less serious and to turn things into more of a game. Because if we're able, again, to gamify these things, we will win uh, Cybrid's attention. And uh, who is it? John Perry Barlow once said attention is the new monetary unit. So the more that we can really capitalize on that, I think uh, we will be able to really integrate the generations in a way that is more meaningful and in a way where we create our own resiliency for the future. So on that note, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I should have stopped sharing my presentation a while ago um, so that you guys could have seen me. But uh, yeah, I will. If uh, you guys have any questions, please put it in the chat box. I think I have eaten up all of my time. I tried to talk quickly. So uh, Gary, I will hand it over to you. I think you're next. Thank you, Erica. Right. Thanks, Erica. That was great. Um, so, Simon, if you're if you're a rock star, then I'm your roadie. So I've just been here tuning up your guitars for you. So um, just going to hop in and offer a couple of thoughts. Uh, so I think Erica did a great job of sort of setting the table of just the, some of the macro trends and ways to be thinking about these generations that are coming up. And I, I hope that one of the major takeaways is it really is different. We, we always want to think that each generation is unique, each generation is in a unique time, and that's always true. But I think the delta, the spread between different generations is growing because of the, the pace and spread of change. So I want to just offer a couple of thoughts about how to think about that maybe as, uh, as a parent. If you're not a parent, maybe how to think about that in terms of um, uh, just what some of the challenges and opportunities for the younger generations are. And especially to be thinking about what that looks like in terms of crossing generations. So I'm going to keep these short. I call these fire starters. Uh, it's really more just to spark uh, thinking and conversation. So um, I, I think I have the, uh, the ability to share a screen. I don't want this to make, make this death by PowerPoint, but uh, oh, my God. Absolutely. Once again, humans overcome their technology. So um, 
Let me uh, see if I can see all my windows here. There we go. All right. Uh, do I get a thumbs up? Are we, are we visible? All right. Actually, I just I just wanted the affirmation. It wasn't about the screen. I just wanted you all to say nice things to me. So, um, all right. So I'm just going to roll through this. Uh, I'm working on a book right now called The Next Rules of Work, uh, due out next summer. You're getting a little bit of a preview. Uh, I've structured it into talking about mindset, skill set, and tool set. And uh, the analogy that I use is climbing a mountain. Uh, if you have all the skill set and all the tool set to climb a mountain, but you don't have the mindset, uh, then you are you're not, probably not going to climb the mountain. Uh, but if you have all the mindset and not necessarily all the skill set or the tool set, you still believe that you can climb the mountain. And I think this is a very important analogy for the time that we're in, especially when we're talking about young people and having helping them to be able to find their way in a an increasingly complex and exponentially changing world. Uh, so I'm going to focus mostly on mindset. I want to think about mindset mostly from the perspective of parents and uh, and older people and and the way that they're interacting with uh, with younger people. So first off, I think it's really, really important to make it very clear. Erica was talking about some of these sort of macro trends that, that are the drivers, but careers are really different today. Uh, my, my father was a recovering minister who ended up writing what became the, the world's uh, career manual, What Colors Your Parachute? And he wrote back in the 70s when he wrote his first edition of it, he talked about how careers were going through some changes, but there was sort of incremental change. Now it's kind of big change. Uh, so there are old rules. Uh, and he, after he wrote What Colors Your Parachute, he wrote a book called The Three Boxes of Life. And he basically said, well, the old rules were kind of big chunk of education at the beginning of our lives and then a big chunk of work and then a big chunk of hopefully leisure in what I call the period formerly known as retirement. And those were kind of the three boxes. And, uh, and a lot of people were really comfortable with that. But a young person today comes out of high school, trade school, college, and they might get a day job, but they might also be driving for Uber at night, and they might be working on a startup with their friends, and then they take a gap month with their friends, and then, they, and then they're learning online, and then they get another job. It's a constantly shifting landscape of elements of work and life. And so I call that a portfolio of work. It's actually a rational response. It's a head strategy. Against a rash, against an exponentially changing world. If you knew that the world was going to be very, very different in just a couple of years, you would be doing less of the old rules of work and more of the new rules of work and trying to build a portfolio that could allow you to be able to be insulated against the range of change. For example, if you weren't already doing some level of online work and along comes a pandemic, you weren't insulated from that change. And so young people today, they get the memo. They know that this is an exponentially changing world. So then Firestarter number two, I, parents ask me all the time, uh, how will my kid be okay in the future? They would, uh, how will my kid be happy and successful? That's a, that's a really common uh, question that I hear. And especially at that young adult launch pad period, uh, in a high school beginning of what would normally be, be college. Uh, that's sort of the inflection point that I think the fever pitch of parental fear seems to rise to its greatest point. Uh, so the, the challenge is that in the past, Simon was talking about uncertainty. In the past, sure, there were challenges. Careers were never guaranteed. But 
if you became a lawyer, you became a doctor, you got into a certain field, you became an engineer, you could be reasonably certain you were going to be in that field for a while. This is not certain. This is scary to many. A lot of parents ask me, why won't my kid get a real job? Well, it's because they're hedging against an uncertain future. And so what happens for parents, unfortunately, though, in their minds, you want to communicate to this child strategies for being successful in the future. But the rules you were taught are no longer sufficient for success in this world. But what happens is, especially at that inflection point, that young adult launch pad, where we have raised the risk that our child will be potentially unsuccessful in the future, has created so much anxiety for us that we communicated to them. And, and I've literally, you know, my son's 24 now, but when I was in high school seven years ago, I asked his friends, what's the message you're getting from parents about your junior year in high school? And they said to a person, we're getting the message, this is the most important year of my life. And that if I don't get into the right college, study the right field, get the right job and have the right career, that I will be a failure. But in an exponentially changing world, these are all the different options that kids have. And especially in the COVID era where we've suddenly completely unbundled their learning experience, you know, hybrid is... (laughs) is a poor uh, description of what they're going through. They can do everything from a gap year to doing freelance work, going to trade school, gig work, uh, community college, a four-year college. Oh, but they might drop out. And then there's all these different use cases for that inflection point. And so what I tell parents is you, you, it, we need to dial it down. Like we need to be less concerned about trying to send this message to kids that this is going to basically define the future of their lives. Because, well, here's the way to know. Here's the question to ask yourself. If you're making it all about you, which of these would you be proud to tell your friends about? Well, we know your kid getting into Harvard for a four-year program would be something you'd probably tell a lot of your friends about. But what about your kid going to trade school or doing gig work or – you know, that's how we know that we make it about us, is that we have our old model of success that our friends all have signed up for as well, and we're trying to apply that to a new generation that is dealing with exponential uncertainty. So I want to offer a different framing. This is what we should be designing for. It's an arc of life. We all go through this. We all go through predictable developmental stages. We all go through different periods where things are going really, really well and things aren't going quite so well. But what we've done is we've sort of constrained those periods into structured approaches, and then in our minds we're sort of trying to design the best outcomes for each of them. We've got this pre-K learning thing. We've got this elementary school. Oh, and then we have this college, this young adult launch pad thing but they're going to be an adult for a lot longer than they've done any of those other things. As a matter of fact, your kid is probably going to live a lot longer than you are. I don't know if you've seen the book A Hundred Year Life, but uh, you know I should write the book The Hundred Year Career. Your kid's probably going to live longer than you do. And if we're trying to help them to optimize for the old rules, the window where we thought they needed to be prepared for one job, one field, one, you know, sure, they would change jobs inside the field, but, but for the most part, to be designing for a relatively static and linear work box. Instead, we need to think differently. We can't put so much on this brief 
window of life. And instead, we need to change the calculus and how we're helping these young people to be able to thread the needle in an exponentially changing world. So that's Firestar number three. How do we help them? Uh, I'm, it's, I'm going to make this sound like it's simple, but that's why it's a fire starter. I'm not going to give you all the answers. <laughs> you got to teach them to fish. Uh, this is actually how my father begins uh, through, um, the book, What Colors Your Parachute? You know, the old parable about giving them a fish versus teaching them a fish. We have to teach them to fish. We've got to teach them the skill set and the mindset that they need. They already have the tool set. They already have all the digital distraction devices that they need. They've got lots of technology. We need to help them with the mindset and the skill set to be able to continually respond to a world of exponential change. Now, I happen to have picked out four skill sets. I think they're really important. They've got to be problem solvers who are agile, that is constantly adaptive. They've got to be creative because that's what's going to keep them ahead of robots and software. And they have to have empathy. They've got to stay connected to the lived experience of the humans around them if they're going to be successful in the future. You can pick your own skills, you can pick your own mindset, but I'm going to guarantee you it needs to teach flexibility, agency, and adaptability. And I also want to suggest we change the question. The question is not, do you want your kids to be happy and successful? Because that's following the old rules of work. It's your model for happiness. It's your model for success. And theirs may be very, very different. Instead, we should want our kids to thrive on their own terms. To help these digital birds to fly from the home, fly from the nest, and to be as successful as possible, but on their own terms. And to enable them to have the mindset and the skill set so they can do that. The end game is we help them to maximize their human potential. That's really what our greatest opportunity as parents and as older people is, is we boomers can be helping these younger generations to be able to become what they could become. So if any of these ideas are interesting, I've got uh, nine courses on uh, LinkedIn learning with about 600,000 students, um, learning agility and developing a learning mindset. There's a bunch of methodology around there that, uh, that I talk about, like how you actually develop that mindset and skill set. So, but I'll stop there, and and uh, I think I'm, I'm handing off to Denise at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, folks, my screen is good. Oh, good. All right. Well, um, Simon, if you're the if you're the rock star, and uh, Gary, <laughs> if you're the roadie, I think that makes me the groupie. I'm not sure. If, <laughs> if I like that, but we'll go with it. You're the uh, next act. I'm the next act. <laughs> and we have a few encores coming up. So I just have a couple of very quick slides and things I wanted to, points that I wanted to bring out. I think Eric did an amazing job of setting the larger scope of the macro way of thinking about this. And Gary, as always, has some amazing practical tips for how to truly think about what's happening in the future of work. And my perspective is more about bringing out the idea about values and what that means. And just by way of background, um, I'm a future of work practitioner and an extreme enthusiast. I love everything future of work. I'm the founder at Sway Workplace. We are a learning community that helps people and teams master the future of work and flexibility. We believe in the process of humanizing work through flexibility to improve both personal and business outcomes. Now, the emerging trend that we see as most dominant in relation to this conversation is the move towards what we see as work as a lifestyle, where work is fundamentally changing from something that we used to do simply to pay the bills to being the ultimate source of self-discovery and self-expression, and paying the bills is coming in as a close second. It is a remarkable change, 
and it's happening very, very fast. And in this world, our new world, what was the heavy liability of uncertainty, which is one of the key words that Simon introduced, is now viewed by the younger generations as actually the elusive asset of freedom. So this singular and extraordinary switch in perspective is at the root of the generational disconnect that we experience today. Um, to that end, I'd like to present to you three primary points that I think will help us to contextualize, explain, and solve the disconnect. I have a very quick first my ask to you, and our topic tonight is quite unique, and I think that the material presented covers the macro trends, emerging ideas, and very practical applications. But what is kind of special is the conversation, and that is what makes it personal. So if you would indulge me and take this moment to, at the midpoint of our conversation, to perhaps grab a pen and paper to jot down your thoughts on what it is that you're hearing. Because uncovering these topics and how they relate to you individually is where the magic is. So please feel free, obviously, to share in the chat or hold on to your questions until the end. The first point to consider is that the future of work is, in fact, secret code for the future of our values. And why is that? Because work is a global language. We all speak it. It's how we get to know each other. It's how we get comfortable. And it's how we tend to relate to one another. Work is also the most fundamental human act of what it is to be human. And it simply has to be. As the vast majority of our time spent is, if you're not sleeping, you're very likely performing some version of work. In the context of this conversation, and an aspect not often discussed, is that work is the most tangible and clearest way to express our values. And our core value systems is the actual glue that binds together our families and our communities. So what has changed? Let's take a quick look back. The American dream was built on the ideals of hard work. Our national system of values is inseparable from the notion of hard work. This was the reliable, secure, and surefire path to stability, love, and happiness through shared values and community values. This was an equalized approach that was simply available to all. So in that sense, hard work was deemed to be virtuous. Now, if we step forward, financialization of the economy in the 1970s tend broke this trend. There was no longer a 50-50 split in an economic dollar earned. Income inequality and all of its growing social consequences took root at this time, and one major consequence was a growing divide on the perception of our value system. In response, to, in response, Gen X and older generations have been working harder and harder, holding on to what we know, but finding ourselves overworked, burned out, and anxiety-ridden. So if we step back and we look at Gen Y and all the younger generations, they taking a look at this, and they were having an allergic reaction. They want to trade being overworked for meaningful work. They want to trade being burned out for being fired up in what it is that they do. And they want to trade anxiety and certainty for freedom. The reality is that they can and they are in massively increasing numbers. And this is most visible when we see the change in lifestyle choices. The reality, the Gen Y and below, here's a good example. They don't buy, they subscribe. So why would I buy a car when I can get an Uber anywhere I need to go? Or why would I buy a home when I have a location-free job? Why start a family young when I can travel the world and maybe have a family later? 
This, this very fundamental difference in financial and familial obligations has allowed for more freedom of choice. To sum up this point, and this is the main point I want to make, Gen Y and below have traded hard work for smart work. This does not mean that we have different values. It means we have different ways of finding and expressing them. The future of work is our opportunity to broaden our mindsets, to look past the noise, and to once again connect on the meaning and presence of these core tenets in our families and communities, and to align our perspectives with our values. Second point I want to bring up is what is the world of work asking of all of these generations? It seems like a luxury to spend your early years in a carefree way, roaming the world, looking for your meaning and purpose. I mean, who would not sign up for that? But the reality is that is actually a must-have, not a nice-to-have. In the earlier part of the Industrial Revolution, we swapped people for machines and assembly lines. As we stand on the cusp of the fourth Industrial Revolution, artificial intelligence continues to automate tasks with the potential to displace or disrupt hundreds of thousands of jobs. Who knows what the market's going to look like in 10 or 15 years? We can predict trends, but not certainties. What we do know, however, is that what we are left to work with and this is our greatest asset yet to be discovered, that is our human potential that Gary so eloquently outlined earlier. So free from manual labor and monotonous tasks, we can begin to meaningfully tap into our creativity, to ideate on new products, services, and solutions to problems that may not even exist yet. This is the, what the world of work is asking, and we get there by granting freedom of choice where and when we can. This leads me to my third and final point, and this is more of a question to pose. How do we use the language of work to unify the generational divide? This is a really important thing to consider, is that we cannot expect to raise future-ready kids unless we have future-ready mindsets. And the key to developing this is simple. Look for your own personal trigger that allows you, in all circumstances, to switch your perspective. So where you would typically see a heavy liability of uncertainty, Look around the edges for the glimmers of freedom. And that is a great place to start. Those are my quick points, and this is going to conclude our sections of our keynotes. Uh, what we're going to do now is segue into the second part of our presentation, and we brought in some practitioners. These are people that are on the ground doing the heavy lifting and the heavy work, and we think that pairing the, our keynotes with these folks is going to be a dynamite conversation. So I'm going to hand off to my friend, Joe, if Joe is on. Joe, are you in the audience? I remember, Denise, he's not on until 5, and you're two minutes shy of 5. Okay. He might talk. So maybe we'll switch that around. But I will say that um, I know that Joe is a dear friend because I told him all week that the panel is actually tomorrow. And he very kindly, very last minute, was able to switch things around and jump in. So, indeed, he is a good friend. So, perhaps what we can do is, if he's not on yet, Renit, would you be uh, willing to jump in here? Yes, absolutely. Hold absolutely. on. Let me, let me get myself geared up. Uh, and mm -hmm. just really also appreciating the chat that's going on. There's some, some good and provocative commentary that's coming through. So, hi, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Okay, can you all see my screen? Yes? Okay, great. 
And some of you may have seen a few of these statistics at the last presentation that I gave in this gathering, but we're going to take this in a slightly different direction. So just to set the stage, um, my name is Ronit Avni, and I'm the founder and CEO of a career tech platform that connects students and recent graduates with industry experts and employers, and we focus primarily on emerging markets. So happy to talk about that afterwards. But working very deeply at the older end of the spectrum in terms of post-secondary education, um, some of you may have seen the statistic from the World Economic Forum that 65% of young people will work at jobs that haven't been invented yet. And so there's a huge conundrum about how you train people for jobs that don't yet exist. And not only do they not yet exist, in many cases, we can't even envision what they may be if we're talking about a horizon 10, 15 or 20 years from now. And COVID has also accelerated a push for decentralized talent. So it's a much more competitive landscape than it was even nine months ago. You're seeing very conservative industries suddenly recognizing that not only can they shift to work from home, they can also recruit from anywhere. And so the talent pools are growing, the competitiveness is growing, and people are rethinking the paradigms of how they are going to be operating. Now, Strata Education, some of you may have seen, just released this study that 66% of college students excuse me, college students in the U.S. want uh, better access to career guidance and better access to employers. And demand is even higher for students in emerging markets. There are over 100 million students in these markets, and that number is growing. So in emerging markets, even though we're talking about potentially moving away from the college par paradigm, and Gary, I'll talk a little bit about that because I, I concur that some of the old models of uh, educational instruction are changing, that demand is not diminishing in emerging markets. If anything, the appetite is increasing. So people are going in with an expectation that they're going to get trained and they're going to um, be able to get jobs. And unfortunately, there in some places, there's actually an inverse relationship. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to be unemployed in places like Egypt, as an example. So what characterizes this moment for students and recent graduates? The new normal requires continuous upskilling. So we are constantly facing our own obsolescence. And there's a lot of anxiety that comes with it, right? We're, we're battling the sense that we're going to be out of date. Every single person on this call faces the risk that our expertise is going to be out of date. And not just in five years from now, but in three months from now, in six months from now. And so we've got to be uh, in a state of, as Gary said, agility, this idea of continuous upskilling, just-in-time learning. We're going to have to be absorbing the kinds of skills that we need as they are adapting and evolving. We're going to be facing perf uh, perpetual professional anxiety, and that's true for this next generation. I think that they're already uh, in some ways hardwired for the fact that that is the new normal. And creativity is going to be one of the ways that is going to help protect this next generation against all of these really difficult uh, challenges. 
And so I would argue that whereas in the past it used to be that the pillars for success were that you needed hard skills, right? If you wanted to be a doctor, you studied medicine. And then a number of years, several decades ago, they established that you needed soft or essential skills. You needed to be able to communicate with people. You needed to be able to lead or be creative or adapt. All of those things that we're talking about in terms of mindset. But there's one more pillar. I, I think of it as a three-legged stool where the next piece actually has to do with social capital or career community. In other words, you need to be able to learn from other people and hear from other people and share ideas just like we are now in order to pre be prepared for what's coming. And that ability to learn from other people and to see what's coming down uh, in the future is contingent upon the nature of your network. So if you have a very wide network, if you're able to have this career community that can guide you, you're in really great shape. But if you don't, if you're not tapped into elite networks or very successful networks or very diverse networks, then you are at a disadvantage. So that becomes essential. And it actually speaks to that statistics that I shared with you, the 66% of students wanting better career services, it's not that they want a better career guidance counselor to help them format their resume. It's that they actually want to be speaking to people in the field and understanding in real time what are the skills that they're going to need. Now, I would argue that usually by the time something is taught in class, it's already out of date. And so that necessitates the need for a continual feedback loop between industry and classes, whether they're micro courses, boot camps or degrees. Uh, I'll be provocative here and say that I think we, re we need to fundamentally rethink the purpose of university. I don't think we should discard it, but I think that there, there needs to be a concentrated place where we think about ethics, we think about history, we think about philosophy, we think about citizenship, because we are having a crisis of truth and facts, uh, as Erica mentioned earlier. There's got to be a place where people are given the tools to be great citizens and to be able to think profoundly and deeply. Maybe that's the university structure, maybe it's not. But I would argue that we might want to decouple concentrated time of study and learning from career outcomes, or we need to radically rethink the university structure so that it is much more integrated with industry. And you're seeing that already, that universities are offering boot camps, or let's say there's a university in Jordan that has a year of practical experience that you cannot graduate unless you go out and work for that year. Instead of study abroad, you're actually going into industry. So we're seeing those models. We need to see more of them because the current system is not serving enough students. Um, you may have seen in the Harvard Business Review article a number of months ago, Reid Hoffman talked about the fact that you need to learn from people, not classes. And we're seeing that more and more. There's simply too much to learn, too much information to absorb. And so these kinds of conversations that are brief, it's just in time, and, and it's bite-sized information becomes critical. And what you're seeing here image-wise, these are all um, screenshots from our platform on Localize, where we have experts who are sharing their insights and expertise on a daily basis, but it doesn't, that's just one way that we're trying to tackle this problem. But I, I agree with Reid Hoffman here. Um, the other thing is that uh, you would be very surprised. So we actually surveyed employers across the Middle East and North Africa twice um, when COVID hit, so in the spring, and then just again last month. And we found that roughly 70% of employers, and I'm talking about big name employers, had been recruiting fresh talent, early stage talent, the young generation that we're talking about in person. 
So they have been going on campus. And this is true in places like MENA. It's true in India and other emerging markets where um, even today, when companies are recruiting virtually for later stage talent, they were finding their early stage talent in person. That is dramatically changing with, with COVID-19. So again, the methods by which industry is finding talent are changing and COVID has accelerated this new normal. So um, one of the things that we kicked into was a virtual career fair when we found out that 80% of our university partners had to cancel theirs. Uh, but we're seeing a very dramatic rethinking of what those practices look like. The other thing is that um, we're going to have to think about knowledge sharing at scale in different ways. Uh, so Gary, yours was a perfect example when you mentioned, I think you said 660,000 students who are, who are uh, learning from you on, on LinkedIn, something along those lines. That's extraordinary. So this is, this is where we're moving, which is um, figuring out what needs to happen in person, early childhood education. I think coronavirus has really cemented for anyone who is a parent of a young, of a young child that there are certain things that must take place in person, especially if you're trying to challenge students to do th things that are outside of their comfort zone. It's one thing to reward people. Erica was talking about the, the rewards, uh, the gamification of processes. That works really well if you're already intrinsically motivated about something, you already have a passion for it or a, a leaning towards it. It's much harder if you're trying to get an introverted, awkward kid to try dancing, for example, right, or to try a sport. It's very different when there isn't the social pressure um, of a, a peer group of some sort of live experience. And so I think that we are learning now what can happen in person, what can happen virtually. And if it's happening virtually, then it should be happening to a certain degree uh, at scale. Where I'm especially passionate is the idea that you can now create new affinity-based communities to share knowledge that are different than the ways we did it before. Before, perhaps, you would have alumni groups sharing their knowledge uh, to their alma mater. Now you can have it based on your roots. You can have it based on uh, certain er you know, things that you're passionate about, and we're seeing that at scale. And, and Localized, my company, is very much uh, attuned to that when it comes to people who have roots in a particular region sharing their knowledge. So with that, um, I, would, I would just leave you with a couple of uh, provocative uh, thoughts. I had been, one of the things that had actually come up in our, our prep conversation was the idea that there were certain steps that students needed to take. They needed to, um, you know, do their studies. They needed an internship. They needed a LinkedIn profile. They needed to be figuring out where they wanted to work. And actually, all of that is upside down from our perspective, that I agree with Erica that we want to meet students where they are, where they feel comfortable, excuse me, where they feel comfortable and make sure that we are adjusting the structures to meet this new normal, because it's not just them being contrarian. It's actually that so much is changing at such an exponential level that it would be absolutely unfair to introduce that friction of trying to move them uh, into the older ways of doing things. So with that, I'll turn it over uh, to Barry, I believe, and uh, excited to see some of your questions in chat. So right Thanks, Renee. Yeah, right before we go to Barry, I'm going to introduce uh, Joel Aranjaro. Um, and Renee, this is actually a perfect segue into Joe. Uh, he works at Rutgers University as an adjunct professor. I really, really admire his work, and he definitely has some real value to add here in relation to Stephen Burke, a question you just asked him about the life skills that are taught at university. So, Joe, I'll hand it over to you to give some background. Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, so, Aaron Jarrell, I'm in 
New Jersey right now and happy to be here. I don't have any slides, so I'm just going to blab for a couple minutes um, and give you guys some perspective on the work I do. I'm going to start a little bit with the present and the class I teach and its evolution. Then I'm going to dip a bit into the past as to what brought me um, to do this. And then I'm going to focus at the end about the future. I think it's a lot, why a lot of us are here to think about where are we going? Um, where do we have to go? What's going to be inevitable? And I'm going to cover that um, right at, at the closing. So in terms of present, I teach a class called Career Explorations at Rutgers University. Um, but I like to call it Career and Life Explorations. I've been doing it for about a year and a half. This is my third semester. And when I took over the class, it was mostly about career stuff. It was job searching, occupations, industries, right, job posts, resume, cover letter, LinkedIn networking, interviews. And I have been brought in to actually make it a practical class around career searching, but also a personal development class around life and around the software skills that we just discussed. And we have now incorporated elements into the class around purpose, around values, what are your deeper needs and drivers, emotional intelligence, we talk about empathy, communication principles, growth mindsets, um, things like risk and risk-taking, adversity, resiliency, lessons from failure, even things like conscious capitalism, which is my full-time um, career path, uh, and what makes a good job and tools like that. Because really, essentially, a lot of the soft skills and a lot of the personal development tools are now increasingly mandatory career skills. Like, you almost have to have them. In some cases, they're, they even supersede the technical and the hard skills. So this class has been as morphed into a blending of the two. I think that best serves um, students on their journey. Now, some of my experiences in the class, um, unfortunately, a lot of them come in not having done any of this work on themselves from the personal side. They don't know what makes them come alive. They don't know why they're making the choices they're making. You know, what's their why, as Simon Sinek would, would say? And it's not a Rutgers thing. I've talked to students from all sorts of public and private and Ivy League universities who have similar points of view. They haven't gone through a curriculum that engages them in this way. So they're anxious, they're stressed, they're uncertain. Um, and frankly, the students have this very high, very one-dimensional view of what life success is after college. On the one side, they're very altruistic. They want to make a difference. They want to care for people and planet. I think all the data shows that. I, think, I believe everyone here knows this. But they're also still thinking about status and wealth. And they have a little appreciation for what we know really can bring us life satisfaction, right? The meaningful relationships, going out in nature, um, good diet, being curious, being present, carving out our own paths, expressing our natural gifts and talents, having a sense of control over our decisions taking consistent action on things and challenging ourselves. These are fundamental, but very often overlooked pieces of what a truly joyful and satisfactory life is. So there's these shortcomings that um, Rutgers has been very honest about when they look at themselves. And I've been helping them roll up the sleeves a little bit to address this with this class that we have now, which is a full semester accredited course, um, as well as some future classes that we're gonna get to in a minute. So looking at the past, to frame this up, I fell into a job. I think as many of us do, you have a contact, my brother's friends, my dad has a person here, he can get you in, and then you, you, you take it because you need a job, and then, you know, or, or you just pick the major because it seems safe and secure, and then you do it for a year, five years, and all of a sudden your identity becomes this resume, this piece of paper that you have. 
and it says, this is me. I do this and I can't do anything besides this. Um, and then we have a lifestyle that says, I have to keep doing this. So most of us are stuck and I was for a number of years. Uh, so there was no intent. I had a, a student from a, a, from a master's program at another public university get in contact with me through a mutual friend and he wanted help. He's like, Joe, how do I, I want to need a job and I need some just help on, on what to choose. And this is a big university. And I asked him some simple questions. What are your values? What are your interests and passions? What makes you come alive? How, when, where would you like to work? And there was no answer to any of those questions. It was, I spent a ton of money on a master's program. It says I can do this and this for a company and I'd like your help to do it. Right. So this is something that I went through. I know probably a few of you might have gone through as well. And I think too many of us continue to go through that path. Um, I also lacked essential life skills, active listening, empathetic communication. How do we humanize others? Uh, I, ne- I was never taught that in my in my training, my educational training. Uh, and I wasn't aware of my natural gifts and talents about what made me come alive. And these things evolve over time. But I wasn't given the tool set to help continuously evaluate them as I get new data, new inspiration, I get meet new people, I do new things. Um, and then also, I, I didn't know what a good job was, what meaningful work meant. I think very few people do. There's this political mantra, and it, there's no emptier political mantra than this one, and believe me, there's plenty of competition for this, um, than someone saying up there, a politician saying, we're going to bring back good jobs. And I'm like, what does that mean? There's never a follow-up. There's never any sort of real definition of what that means for our society. I mean, we know what it means. It means pay and maybe a benefit, but that's not what a good job is. So we're just conditioned to think good jobs are about pay and benefits. And our psychological and emotional human needs are left behind. So this is a lot of my past on, on how I came to this with the university and, and some of the work I'm trying to do to help correct some of these things that I went through. So other students can, you know, start with a little bit of a better position. So looking at the future, uh, at Rutgers, we're taking the class that I teach now and we're actually expanding it and we're making it into a four year journey for students. And it's all thanks to a very nice grant we got from the Jewish Foundation for the Education of Women. And we're going to start this next fall with a cohort of 30 students, again, a four year journey. And the goals are about purposeful life and career. It's about values, interests, strengths. It's capitalizing on your skills, and it's also using language in the formats that we know employee, employers are looking for. How do you bring that language out in cover letters, resumes, and LinkedIn profiles, interviews? We're going to uh, incorporate a lot of the soft skills, the emotional intelligence, the communication, the empathy, the inclusion parts of it. We're going to do personal reflections around a growth mindset because we know life is going to be challenging. Life is going to be hard. Things are always going to come at us. And how do we have that perspective to use it for our good, right? How do we have our perspective to grow from it, to use every single opportunity as a way to expand and to give us a, a different opportunity stream? We're going to incorporate parts about this that are going to have people interact with their peers. They're going to build a strong network foundation. They're going to be introduced to organizational structures and digital tools and industry trends. So there's a whole lot of this that's going to go on, but I'm really excited about it because it's a four-year journey. We're now, right, now, right now we're trying to incorporate a lot into a semester. But this is going to be a whole four-year curriculum, again, starting with 30 students uh, next year and hopefully scaling after that. So outside of Rutgers, in terms of looking 
forward and looking at the future, generally speaking, from someone who looks at a lot of resumes, there's a lot of career coaching with my students and others. The way we hire, the entire process, is it's, it's brutally painful. It pains me to work with another human being and have them feel so much pressure to put a certain thing on their resume or LinkedIn profile or cover letter that is not reflective of them, but it's reflective of this job posting that requires them to be this. And it's really been painful for me to see that, that we have human beings forcing themselves to mold into a company when it really should be reversed. And if it were reversed, it would change everything so much. I think eventually it will be reversed where organizations are going to pick human beings based on what their natural states are. What would they like to do? How would they like to spend their day? Because, A, that's going to be a much better employee for you. And, B, the companies can make that work. It's, it's us as human beings that need to really reflect ourselves and not feel like we have to be someone else or something else for someone else. It's not sustainable. I also think that schools are going to look more closely at um, certain topics around License or providing certifications for emotional intelligence, for the soft skills we talked about, and they're going to do it in curriculum form, not as one-offs like webinars or access to an app or um, career services counseling centers or even just some, you know, half credit or basic standard, you know, self-guided curriculums online. I think schools are really going to have to look into this. And I think some are with Rutgers being the kind of example because there's ed tech and there's micro degrees that you can pick from now on demand where you can piece together a lot of these things already. And I think universities are seeing the competition. So I can pick to become an economics major at a university and pay a hundred thousand dollars or through all the different ed tech solutions. Now I can piece together purpose and values, some digital marketing, a bit of emotional intelligence, even degrees in, you know, conscious capitalism. And that's a much fuller, much richer educational experience than doing a single major at a university. Um, so those are some of the things that I, I have been through, the class I teach now, where we're going as a university, and what I see as a future as a future state for how we match people to jobs. So thank you for having me on here and uh, love to share. Denise, can I ask one question to Joe? Yeah. Is the mindset at all, because I'm so frustrated with universities, I, I, I went rogue and created my own alumni connecting because I don't think they were, they're milking the cow, not feeding the cows. Um, it's just the way it's set up. Isn't it? It's not a 40, is it? A, it's a 40 year or a hundred year journey. Doesn't the model have to ad- adapt to that? Where it's, it, it's certain, you know, it goes, it keeps going. Yeah. Let me give you an example of that. So in this four year curriculum, yeah, it's four years, right? We can't keep students around forever. <laughs> we, they are re, we're working in a, a part where they're going to reassess their passions, their skills, their interests, the just cause they support every single year at the start to reflect the prior year's learning and whatever experiences, people they've met, internships they've taken, inspiration they've gotten from a book, a vacation they took to Thailand. Who knows where inspiration comes from? And all of a sudden things change on a whim. And that's one example I think that I want to highlight because this is about giving them tools to use well beyond the four years and incorporate the mindset this is ongoing. It's not a one and done. I think that's a really important point to all this. I'll pause there. Sorry, Denise, go ahead. 
Joe, that's awesome. Thanks for the perspective. I think it fit in very nicely with the conversation. Um, we're going to tee over to Barry, who will be our last speaker for tonight before we vote over to Q&A. Barry, take it away. Thanks, Denise. <clears throat> Thanks, everybody. This has been absolutely fascinating so far. I'm going to touch on a few points before I share my slides. Um, Joe, you mentioned Korea. Uh, I started as an English literature and classical civilization major, and I'm the um, CEO of a software company. Um, the connection between those things seems to be a bit tenuous, but uh, I value the, the education, and it's prepared me for what I'm doing now. Um, Erica, you mentioned cybers, and that's uh, a great word. I haven't come across that word before, but that's exactly what we've developed, the technology we've developed. It, it basically augments human t uh, potential. Uh, Gary mentioned mindset, um, agile, creative problem solving, and empathy. All of these are themes in the work that we do as well. And Denise, you mentioned overwork, burnout, and anxiety. Many of our clients turn to us for uh, to help them solve those exact problems. And then finally, Renit, um, learning from other people is is at the heart of what we do as well. So it's fascinating to see the alignment between all the speakers today. With that, let me share my screen and um, the slides. Let me take those full screen. There we go. So let's start uh, with just a little bit of a recap on some of the, the, the topics that have been mentioned so far. First of all, this shift from the manufacturing economy to an information economy. Um, this basically requires certain skills, verbal skills, mathematical skills, social skills, and power skills, what used to be called soft skills. Now, of course, all of these skills were acquired to some extent in a manufacturing economy, but there's something different about a knowledge economy, and that is the requirement for nuance and coordination. You know, if you're working on a production line and there's a set uh, routine to go through, there's not much nuance to the work. But if you're working within the knowledge economy, there's an enormous amount of nuance to communicating and the requirement for collaboration. And that, that's what makes these skills so essential. Similarly, if we're looking at the explosion of new knowledge, new technology, new products and new services, these are, are, are overwhelming. There's a relentless waves, waves of change uh, that we're, we're um, experiencing all of the time with incredible demands on people, particularly young people, to keep up with, with, with uh, all the changes that are, are happening. And it's, um, it's increasing and raising the requirements for economic adaptiveness. Again, I, I don't think this is necessarily new, simply recapping the context here. Um, the emergence of uh, a global economy of unprecedented competitiveness, um, it's another challenge to our ingenuity and belief in ourselves. My daughter's 14, and she knows that she's actually in competition with everybody in the world uh, of, of her age. Whereas when I grew up, because we didn't have the, the Internet, um, there was a sense in which you were competing with the people in your community, essentially. Uh, and maybe that was just a limitation of my own thinking. But I think that the Internet really brings this home to children, that they are competing with everybody in the world. And of course, if, if you're um, you know, uh, just an, an ordinary individual and you, you haven't uh, experienced some remarkable talent, um, then you, you feel as if you're just a number in this giant system. So it's really important to give children an opportunity to excel in something so that they can feel that sense of confidence through, through their experiences. Um, Self-starting individuals are required at every level of an organization. And you may be wondering why I've got this paint bucket uh, mixing um, paint picture. Well, you may have heard recently of Tony Pilasino. He's a 22-year-old Ohio student 
who created a, a TikTok account where he mixed paint just for fun. He's got more than a million followers. And he was fired by Sherman Williams because customers were calling in and asking, how do we mix, mix blueberries into our paint? Now, yeah, just think about that. Customers were calling the company and they fired him for it. Happily, the story ends very happily. He was hired by Florida Paints that recognized his creativity. But this is what's required from everybody within an organization, great levels of entrepreneurialism and creativity. There's also a growing awareness of the mind and its requirements as the central and dominating factor in economic activity, which I don't think needs all that much explanation. Self-management, initiative, responsibility, self-direction, and high levels of consciousness and commitment to innovation and contribution as top priorities. Um, so given this context, what do companies actually need? They need two things, activation and agility. What are these things? Well, activation is the process of driving behavior change. You know, if we're, if we're facing these relentless waves of change, they're going to uh, land us on the beach unless we can figure out how to surf the waves of change. And that activation process is the, um, a deliberate process that a company needs to adopt in order to facilitate change. And it also requires agility, which is the style of thinking that enables rapid adaptation to change. So the agility comes from, uh, from the individuals, from the employees. The activation process comes from the leaders, basically, within an organization. These two things meet. Now, uh, many people don't have an agile approach. This can be trained. Um, and it requires the activation from, from leaders to help people develop their agility muscles, if I can put it that way. So what does good actually look like um, in the end? You know, all of us wake up every morning and when we want to change, it's true in our personal lives and it's true in our businesses, we want to transform, we want to get someplace we currently are not. And the issue is it's really hard to change. And even when we have some of the tools that help us change, maybe we're inspired, maybe we learn a new technique. It's really, really hard to stick with it. It's one thing to buy a book or a course, but it's another thing to actually make the changes that you need. So how do we actually um, get there in the end? How do we get to you know, productive, collaborative, innovative, inclusive teams that are rowing in the same direction with optimistic, self-starting individuals making progress in their lives with improved capabilities, greater happiness and engagement? How do we actually get there? Well, it's not really rocket science. Uh, we've known for a long time, and this, the, the, the research backs this up, that one-to-one -one communication between people, kind of co coaching conversations, are extraordinarily um, effective at helping people to develop. The problem is that it's very difficult to scale this, right? First of all, great coaches are quite rare and tend to be quite expensive. There's not, not too many of them to go around. So a giant organization trying to uh, cope with all of these changes at scale, it's, it's almost impossible to supply every individual with a competent coach. And this is where technology comes in. What, what we developed um, and what we use now with, with our clients is a, a process of activation which gives people a daily challenge for a period of time. It could be 10 days, 15 days, 20 days, 30 days. Um, and it's basically evidence-based transformation. Why is it conversational? Well, the interface itself is conversational. It takes the essence of the coaching process, which is question-based, allowing an individual to log in and, and respond to questions around certain themes, productivity, um, inclusion and diversity, uh, strengths-based coaching, 
leadership coaching, and a range of other kinds of uh, power skills. And these small coaching moments allow people to basically reflect. The virtual coach guides you to connect with teammates in very specific ways. So an example there, coffee break, take away from, uh, from work to connect, sorry, step away from work to connect with a colleague. If you're not in the office, then take a virtual coffee break. So people are being directed to do, to do very, very specific things and have very, very specific kinds of conversations with colleagues, which goes back to Renit's point about learning from other people. Basically, imagine a journey like this of 10, 15, 20 days where you can guide people to do very, very specific things, interact with their colleagues in very specific ways. And then the coach inspires reflection and insights. So you've had this conversation now. Um, what happened when you had this conversation? Or you tried a particular uh, activity with some colleagues. What exactly happened? What did you learn? And it's critical to have the reflection opportunity because people don't learn so much from their experiences as they do from reflecting on their experiences. Reflection process is amazing. And what we see is an incredible level of visibility into what, how people are thinking about the behaviors that they're trying um, and, and basically sharing their epiphanies, their realizations, their aha moments. And all of this, of course, means that we are driving social learning and change and collecting an enormous amount of data in the process, which is available for data mining, so that we can see the patterns of behavior across different geographies and across different functional areas. But really the core of it is this impact on people, uh, giving people an opportunity. Many, many users would say things like, this is so refreshing, we've never had this kind of experience before. There's such a hunger for personal development and it's so difficult to get it in an, a conventional company that supplies you know, traditional kinds of e-learning opportunities. So thank you very much. It's been fascinating to listen to everyone. And uh, I think I'm going to hand it back to Mark. Yes, thank you very much, Denise. Uh, we're together. And I think at this moment, number, uh, I would like to really express my gratitude to the wonderful speakers we had today. And uh, I, I would love, and I will love for your participation. Thank you very much for the very active chat, because it gives all of us a pleasure to see that uh, you are intrigued and you are interested in the subject. And now we're moving into the uh, last part of our program, the Q&A section. And my sense is that since we're uh, very practical people, uh, the best thing to discuss would be entrepreneurship and how, like uh, many of our speakers mentioned that entrepreneurship is the key thing which our kids will need to understand and uh, learn in the future. So uh, why don't we just uh, discuss some specifics because as always, everybody thinks about uh, different, def uh, different definitions and we start thinking about all those phenomenal entrepreneurs who made billions of dollars. Uh, and let's uh, basically exchange our ideas, what our dear speakers think when um, they, what, what do they imply when they say entrepreneurship? And I think the first person who used this word was Erica. Erica, can we please ask you to comment on this? 
So I think we need to decouple a couple of things. So the first is I think we need, especially when we talk about entrepreneurship with young people, uh, is to kind of demystify and shall I say kind of desexify entrepreneurship for them because a lot of these uh, very rare cases of deified entrepreneurs the uh well used to be mark zuckerberg's of the world now uh he's come under some scrutiny but it's the college dropouts turned billionaire model uh that a lot of these young people aspire to and they think that that is synonymous with entrepreneurship uh and obviously like i'm preaching the choir it's not uh so to kind of uh put it within a realistic bubble and i think that uh their greatest chance of success at entrepreneurship is actually internal to an organization. Um, so I think we also need to think of how to give them, for any managers out there, uh, give these people, give the young people an opportunity to experiment within the walls and the constraints of a company, um, to kind of take the reins off a little bit and let them create, basically be their own project managers. Uh, when we start valuing, and I talked about this a little bit before, when we start valuing output versus input, we give people the ability to not be constrained by, again, old definitions of time and space. And we let them create their own realities. Uh, so I think that we also need to just get comfortable giving them the tools to be a little bit freer when it comes to how it is that they define work for themselves as well. Thank you very much. Uh, would anyone want to add to this wonderful uh, observation? I, I want to piggyback on that to say I think there's much too much hype around venture-backed uh, entrepreneurship and not enough recognition of the fact that most economies run on small and medium enterprises and that what we're really talking about is agency, creativity, entrepreneurialism, adaptability, agility, et cetera, but not necessarily being an entrepreneur in the way that it's framed. I'm somebody who came from the nonprofit sector and I'm now in, in the private sector. It's not less entrepreneurial in one sector or another. You can be in civil service and be entrepreneurial. So I think we need to we need to move away from this hyper glorification of certain types of founders. It's 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 not an accurate representation of what the economy needs and what what um, people are most likely to do. And it's also just not not helpful. I agree with that, Pranit. The um, the word itself, entrepreneur, is a horrible word. Um, I, I think of it as initiator, uh, somebody who starts something. I use the word self-starter as well. And I think it was um, Erica who uh, mentioned the, uh, the thought escapes me now, but they're, they're basically, my daughter had an opportunity to do an entrepreneurship course last year in her high school, but just the word was off-putting for her. Uh, and yet she's beginning to think about a whole post-school uh, activity that is going to be essentially her own business. And um, it's just fascinating how that word can be eternal. Right. And may I please uh, just again address your uh, – um, focus you on the concept that once we start thinking about the word, uh, we completely change the meaning. Uh, we start with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and we finished with um, a small – shop owner, right? And uh, the definition of entrepreneur, therefore, 
is something something close to person who can use uh, the, the, their brains and uh, their creativity as opposed to somebody who actually becomes uh, a venture capitalist. And I would like to ask um, our speakers about another thing. What would be the most uh, important traits of entrepreneurship, in your opinion? I will start with the word observation and reflexivity, because in my opinion, not one entrepreneur can come up with anything new uh, unless the person has the skill to observe. And um, I think it, uh, Joe uh, mentioned uh, reflexivity. And uh, what is it? How do they connect? Uh, what are other important categories which are important for the to, for us to understand the, your definition of entrepreneur? Joe, would you like to start? I didn't catch that. You said, you said I mentioned what, Simon? Uh, reflect, ability to reflect. Um, to, re to reflect, sorry. Yeah. Ability to reflect on, uh, on uh, our lives, on our nature, on our career, which is very close to what, by the way, uh, Gary, uh, the book about um, career, uh, which Gary mentioned, is about that is about the ability to figure out who the person is before thinking what kind of job or gig the person wants. The word that comes to mind for me is freedom, and the context I give it, I, I give it is there is a way that we would all spend our days if we were free of financial worries and didn't care what anybody thought about us. And when I talk to students about entrepreneurship. It's really about, does it pass that test? What is your motives for doing it? It is something you would do if you didn't have to worry about bills, if you don't have to worry about status, and you just woke up one morning with the complete freedom to spend your day doing anything you'd like. The activities you would do, your, the natural gifts you would express, the kind of social impact you would have. And is there a, a line that can be drawn between your entrepreneurial idea and that kind of freedom that I'm discussing. I think that, that holds beyond entrepreneurship. That's for all of us to think about in general. I think that's what the future of work eventually will be is us spending our days doing the things that come naturally to us and not because we're held under some sort of um, requirement through living standards or even emotional, mental, emotional uh, needs for status and respect to do so. Thank you. Uh, Gary, can you please uh, take it over? I think Gary is not with us. And uh, maybe uh, then, Ranit, uh, we spoke about the importance of uh, mindset. Maybe you can, uh, again, try to talk about mindset and what it is uh, about the mindset other than the word, what we imply, maybe dweck or some other things which we believe is very important for, the, uh, for our kids in the future. Absolutely, Simon. So I think a step before mindset is knowing what your options are, because if you can't see what's available to you, you're not going to reach for it. 
So if you know that there are particular kinds of roles or opportunities or ways that you can spend your time that are appealing to you, then you're more likely to orient yourself, whether it's your time, your mentality, your skill building towards that. But the first step is actually knowing what those options look like. And I, you know, I'm a product of I grew up in Quebec during the recession, uh, where in the 1990s, you could have a Ph.D. and you couldn't get a job waiting tables um, because the economy was in such rough shape. And so people's horizon of what was possible just got very, very low. You reached for things like being a waiter. And those were the things that you tried to become because that was, quote unquote, realistic. So I would say before you shift your own mindset, we have to know what we can be. And, and I refer to that as proximate role models. So people that you credibly look at and think, if that person can, can do X, whatever X is, then maybe I can too. And it's really important that we provide young people with a very diverse global array of roles that they can pursue. I think actually one of the dysfunctions that we have right now, and Erica just touched upon it in chat, we're glorifying sometimes sociopaths but partly because we're not reaching for a diverse array of role models. We're not working hard enough to showcase the various ways that people can put their skills to use at a level of excellence that others can aspire towards that is also perhaps ethical. So I think, I think before we individualize and personalize it, the first step from my perspective is how do we create an environment where people are seeing as many functional, healthy Role, proximate role models as possible. So then they have the choice to be able to then orient themselves accordingly. Thank you. And uh, Eric, would you like to add to this? I mean, I put it in the chat because I know it's controversial and it bucks up against uh, kind of easy ways of talking about an entrepreneur. It also um, goes up against how we think of leadership. We can go into a bookstore today and just see dozens upon dozens of books about what a leader is, but it's how we want a leader to be. Uh, I think about the fact that uh, authoritarian dictators throughout history have been leaders. They do not fit into our narrative as to what we want a leader to be. Uh, Adolf Hitler was a leader. So what does it come down to? Come down to whether it's leadership, whether it's entrepreneurship, um, I think it comes down to, I, again, I put this in the chat, it is being unapologetic about your vision, being steadfast in it, and it's luck. And everything else are just personal characteristics that we want to embed into a leader or an entrepreneur, but they do not have to be there. Uh, so, you know, I'm on the fence as to whether or not those are even things we need to be teaching our children, because maybe they just need to, as I said before, fail buck up and figure it out for themselves versus all of this kind of skill uh, cultivation. Again, uh, <laughs> a controversial point, but one uh, just to kind of spice up the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. And Denise, uh, would you talk a little bit about empathy and maybe lead us towards the concept of social capital, which is very important that I know very dear to many of our speakers? Yeah, I mean, I think empathy for me is, and I think we talked about in the chat as well, empathy and emotional intelligence and being able to see others and feel others. It is an underserved skill. And I think Joe mentioned it very well when he said that it's right now it's considered a quick fix or a quick read or a blog. But the reality is in the future of work where where we 
our asset is our human potential. That's what we're leaning into. You have to have empathy for first for yourself and then for those people that are around you to get to building on social capital. It's such a critical viewpoint, and I think that it is the basis of the mindset that we must build for ourselves. Um, now, I'm going to hand it back actually to Renee because I know that she feels strong about social capital, and I intended to ask you about that earlier, Renee. In terms of empathy and building social capital, I know you feel strongly about that. Could you provide more color on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just one nuance, um, building off of what Erica said, I, I have a different perspective. I agree about the problem with some of the leaderships and the narcissism and, and dysfunction. But I, I do think that most entrepreneurs actually go through what's called the J curve, where they have to pivot and they have to adapt to uh, market realities, customer feedback, et cetera. So if you're unapologetic and stubborn, that's where actually a lot of entrepreneurs fail. So I, I do think that most do have to be uh, adaptive to a certain extent. And, and many are, are, uh, are apologetic, uh, but maybe not through the veneer of public pitching and things Renit, like that. May I inter yeah. interrupt you just for a second? Because you pronounced a few extremely important words which explain the concept of empathy very well, right? Because unless you understand what happens around you, you will not be able to react, right? Unless you not understand that something's happened wrong, or something wrong is happening to you, you will not be able to be with either. So suddenly empathy becomes a huge tool in building uh, success of our kids. Please go yeah. ahead. Absolutely. I would argue that most leaders and most on, most entrepreneurial leaders have a certain degree of empathy in order to adapt. I think that the ones we're choosing to fixate on in the media landscape may be slightly different, the Elon Musks and the, and the Zuckerbergs and stuff. So I, I think the actual numbers are different than, than who we're using as these icon, societal icons. But in terms of the... Um, the, again, I, I think we need to really widen our lens of what we are giving respect to. I, you know, those that are innovating in other sectors and in other spaces, they're not less entrepreneurial. I think, I think we should be focused on entrepreneurialism and creativity and not on entrepreneurship because frankly, we need all kinds of people. There are different types of personalities. Some people want to be out front. Some people want to be working within a team and be, be critical to that team. There are all kinds of um, types of individual personalities that play a role in where you sit within an organism, but we need those various roles. And, um, and so I think that it's really important for us to recognize that and not just look at, at whoever may be in the helm. The second piece, the social capital piece, I can't speak more. That's my, my soapbox, which is that if you don't know it's out there, you're not going to reach for it. So you need to have tentacles in all kinds of places. We need to be talking across disciplines, across sectors. We need to be thinking and, you know, um, moving things. And, and um, uh, it's that interstitial space. It's the space between that is the space that's not going to create obsolescence, right? So AI is going to take over those jobs that are repetitive, that are predictable. And it's going to be the creativity of fusing together sectors and ideas that's going to um, keep people's relevancy. But that only happens when we are in conversation with people across different sectors. So widening your virtual career community, your career community is essential. And I'll just give you one data point. So Stanford, 
has 40 full-time employees in career services in order to connect their students to alumni. Because what they feel is that their career services are not gonna be able to prepare students for the future, but they can connect them to all of the people in FinTech and MedTech and AI and robotics and renewables who are working in these sectors who can give the relevant advice to their students on an ongoing basis. And I think that that's a correct assessment of, of connecting the dots uh, across talent and across um, industry. Thank you, Renit. I encourage everyone to look at the concept of social capital. It is actually very well defined in Harvard Business School works, and uh, it is a uh, it is a very uh, uh, very defined concept as opposed to just a matter of phrase. And you know, to finalize uh, what we discussed today. Maybe I would like to ask everyone to express uh, your views. What what are you know the things which will lead our kids to success? Uh, are there like particular traits or particular keywords which we can explore after this session? Uh, uh, Renit, maybe you can start with us because you can know everything. Yeah, let me defer. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, that's great. I am I am the generation you you are all talking about, so I'd like to. Right, make right, a right. Simon, I appreciate this. I want to show your face as you as you say this, Jonah. Uh, I'm having a little bit of internet trouble, but I can probably for a second. Okay. But um, there is a real mislabeling here. Uh, entrepreneurs are not success influencers, and vice versa. And we are very aware of that. Um, and I think what is being talked about here today are success influencers and not entrepreneurs, and that's a very different model. Um, when, when having that discussion. Can, can you please elaborate a little bit? Um, how do I explain this? Basically, we are not stupid, but we follow success influencers because it gives us a sense of freedom in the moment of the video, um, the voyeurism of, of experiencing success when you cannot be heard in your own environment. Um, and the reality is, is that no one my age is being heard in the workforce other than in Silicon Valley. And if anyone thinks that there is actual voices being heard outside Silicon Valley, uh, they are sadly mistaken and are not looking at the reality of the situation. And that's going to take many years to fix um, and people like me, hopefully, uh, to fix it. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, maybe then... Uh, Actually, I'd like to add to that, if I may, Simon. Please, please. <laughs> please. Go ahead, actually. Well, I, I think the uh, the uh, thing that's plaguing the generation, uh, and I don't mean Gen Z, but I also mean the millennials, and probably even the generation prior to that, is that you know we don't really have role models. Who are our role models, really? And you know, I think I think this whole notion of uh, misplaced uh, views around entre entrepreneurship and you know, the rewards of entrepreneurship is because, you know, we have so few role models that we look up to the most popular ones like Musk or Zuckerberg or whatever the case might be. But, uh, you know, obviously there are lots of pockets across the world where, you know, entrepreneurship is making a huge difference in terms of alleviation of poverty, um, social equality, social justice. So there's a lot of uh, stuff happening, but, you know, obviously... Uh, I think what the media media really picks up today is is just what uh, people like to 
you know, um, tweet or put on their Instagrams and and talk about. So uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of information asymmetry, which is kind of uh, distorting our views on what the generation might actually be feeling. What, 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 my, what my wife just mentioned, I think, is uh, an interesting problem here. We've been talking about the individual and where the individual changes and where entrepreneurship fits uh, within the individual. But where does it fit within the corporation? Because the individuals, uh, like Jonah and many of the young people today, have to live within the confines of the corporation. So what changes are needed in the corporate environment, in the corporate world, uh, so that people like Jonah don't feel that uh, they either have to work in a family company or in Silicon Valley to be hurt? Uh, excellent. And that leads to the question which Steve uh, Burke asked me to ask uh, Joe, uh, and I think uh, the way Lucia put it uh, actually is the same kind of question. So what uh, will make uh, our generation managers successful in, may, in working with people of Jonah's generation? Jonah, you're welcome to answer as well. Uh, we are very interested in hearing your opinion. And Joe, please help uh, us as well. So I think that's interesting as a manager, how you can help. Um, the first thing you need to understand is my age is actually not money driven when they, when they get hired, but they're actually benefits driven. Um, if, if I were offered either a hundred thousand dollar salary, or uh, let's say $50,000, but my medical expenses, my my car, um, those things, those coverages were, were paid for, or my student debt was handled over time, I'd much rather have that job because it creates much more stability for me, and then I can go and take out a mortgage and go get a house, and we can all be happy in that 50s era where people were, you know, were, were 23 or 25 and having families, which is just not going to be happening um, probably ever again. Um, that would that would be really important is if someone was offering me a job, give me more benefits. And that also will retain me, because if, if you're just paying me one hundred thousand dollars, I can go get that from from a competitor. But if you're offering me benefits that are going to be like long lasting decades long uh, to my growth, uh, that's really important. Jonah, I think you're confirming my patch uh, that freedom is not understood as the Statue of Liberty, but freedom is understood as uh, actually comfort and uh, predictability. Thank you very much. And Joe, could you please uh, help us again with your opinion? I want to go real quick. Um, I don't have a generational answer. I'm going to say as human beings, we all have these deep psychological and emotional needs. And corporations don't know what they are. I talk to executives who run multi-hundred million dollar companies that have no idea what these are our need for self-expression, to connect to other human beings, have a sense of autonomy, feel appreciation and care, have psychological safety. That's where it lies. And I want to quickly go to the social capital thing very quickly. Some of the most impactful work I've done with companies is some of the simplest. is putting human beings in a room and giving them good questions to ask each other because we don't ask good questions. What's a bad day you've had? with a positive memory of a loved one who's passed away. 
And they leave those rooms every single time with a renewed appreciation and empathy for others who had, who they had viewed as the transactional relationship. This person was a means to an end. Now this person's a human being with hopes, dreams, traumas, pains. That shifts the entire dynamic. And I've seen culture shift just based on that exercise alone. Yeah. Jerry, it's an extremely uh, good definition of social capital, which is, can be put, simply put, how much trust people have in you and how much they will allow you because you're a nice person and because you be, um, um, uh, you demonstrated your empathy to others. And that's social capital, which unfortunately nobody is focusing on, as Joe and uh, Denise and Erica mentioned. And let's... Um, uh, hope that uh, our kids will uh, understand this and will be able to teach them and they will be uh, happy, successful, whatever they want in their lives. And uh, I appreciate every, every speaker's um, contribution and thank you, dear audience, for your questions. Uh, it was, I think, a very interesting dialogue, a very interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I would ask everyone just to think about what is what do we want to do with part three, four, and five? Where do we take this?